It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today we're looking at book number 52, which is Fat Ollie's book. I'm joined, as ever, by my associates, Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And I have some admin information for this episode in that we have changed podcast hosts. Um, we're now hosted by Anchor, and if you're hearing this, then everything's all right, essentially. And if you're not hearing this, then well, what can I do about it? It just doesn't make sense, does it? Are you trying to mimic Ed McBain there in changing, um, changing. publishers all the time? <laughs> that's Yeah, let's say I am. Right, okay, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's a good good reference, that. But no, the reason I have moved us to a, a new host, especially given that we're so close to finishing the 55 books of the series, you know, we're but uh, three books away after this one, um, is that uh, Anchor doesn't cost me anything to host it, on, oh, right. whereas the other one does. The, well, I suppose the possibility is after we finish the main range, we may come back and do some specials for bits and pieces, but if we don't, I don't want to be paying for hosting for things. Mm. And I want to make sure it's always there for everyone to go back to as a of resource course. in case they need to hear three northern British men talking about some books <laughs> and things. Well, it's, it'll be a resource that's there for the, forevermore. For the ages. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, if anyone notices anything unusual about the podcast feed or you can't find it on your usual player and you've found this somewhere else and you're listening to it, then just <laughs> drop me a line on hark 87 podcast at gmail or twitter or instagram or facebook and yeah so there we go that's all the admin information here we are about to embark in yeah book 52 fat ollie's book it's it is the featured story for one of our old horrible friends fat ollie <laughs> but we will get into a little bit about well here we go some people may have noticed if they've been on twitter that i had a quandary about what to look at here because the last book we looked at was 2001 and this book i thought was 2002 because of the copyright notice in it but actually as far as i can tell it was published on the 2nd of january 2003 which leaves us with a whole year that we've not covered and that's fine that's happened a couple of times in the past but because it's so early in the year of 2003 we're going to use 2002 as our little benchmark and when we get to our bonus episode, because this is our Christmas party episode, you know, lots of tinsel and I can't think of any Christmas things. Candy canes and... Mince pies. Mince pies and... Mini Chris mince pies. Christmas trees. There's a Christmas tree in here with us at this very moment. Um, that made it sound like it just appeared. It was going <laughs> to leave again, but it's not. Then, yeah, we're doing to do 2002 and we'll look at Christmassy period stuff as our... Bonus episode timeline. Anyway. Fair enough. But I can fill us in a little bit on why 2002 may have been a bit of a quiet year for Mr. McBain, Mr. Hunter. Essentially, it's health again. Uh -huh. So we've had the ongoing story through the 90s into the new millennium of Evan Hunter's health woes. And to quote myself from my <laughs> writings, uh, for Hunter, the turn of the decade brought another downturn in health. With a long operation to repair an aortic aneurysm taking place in 2001, followed not long after... I've just noticed a typo in that scenario. <laughs> 
followed not longer after by a return of the hoarseness in his voice. The following year, 2002, the doctors confirmed the presence of a cancerous polyp which had spread and required surgery to remove the larynx. So he then later has a procedure that is installs a prosthesis, which is what enables him to talk again. So essentially he has his larynx removed in 2002. So this is not a minor thing. No. This is his most significant bit of surgery. And if you ever see any photos of him or hear any interviews with him after this date, you'll either see that he has to put his thumb over a hole in his windpipe, essentially, in his neck Mm. to speak. And his voice has changed very much. Uh, Which for Hunter, who was a man who liked to laugh and talk volubly about things, was a heck of a, a downturn for him in his life. So a big change for him, and that probably explains why 2002 doesn't have any TV or film projects mm. going on. Uh, it doesn't have anything coming out. Obviously writes this, and we don't know the timeline for writing of this, but like I say, essentially the hardback versions of this come out very first thing in 2003, and uh, the paperbacks come out the end of 2003. You know, he's, he's an old, ill man, mm. sad to say at this point. But once, you know, he's had all these operations, he doesn't stop writing, which is why we've got more of these books to do. And, you know, and there's more comes out in the future from, you know, non-87 Precinct things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But 2002 in general, I mean, our normal look at 2002 or the year we're talking about, I, like I say, I'll have a look at 2002 in general. I started doing my research. It was such a thoroughly miserable experience uh. researching 2002 in terms of disease, murder, and transport catastrophes, I ended up not writing a very specific list. It was, I mean, right. So we've got Tony Blair, Prime Minister, George W. Bush, President. The the two little, two or three little things I popped out here is the euro is introduced across the eurozone. Oh, it was, yeah. In oh, 2002, the actual currency takes the place of the Deutschmark, the franc, the, what else have we got? Lira. The lira, the... Probably the... Um, I can't think of any other one. Peseta, Gilda, all those things. Uh, probably a load of places that have the word crown as their main well, coin, I, I would have thought. So, yeah. Thus further isolating uh, Britain in uh. in its uh, local environment. Uh, the Queen's Golden Jubilee happens in February of that year. You have the death of the Queen Mother the same year. Creaky. You have a World Cup. It's a World Cup year. Got an info on World Cup it was, 2002, yeah. Steve-O? Can that you remember was, anything? That is when we uh, lost to Brazil, I think, didn't we? Sounds plausible. Um, it sounds very plausible. When David Seaman was miles off his line. Might I'll, be wrong. I'll take your word for it. Mm. Well, I mean, it was... It, it all blur into one big disappointment. Really. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, well, it was hosted in South Korea and Japan, and Brazil ended up winning the whole tournament, so... Yeah, and rather depressingly, a lot of what I was looking up of sort of things that happened in 2002 included the opening of the wet market in China that has been linked to COVID-19 and the first outbreak of SARS, which was a coronavirus. So, you know, I wasn't feeling particularly keen on that year. <laughs> Understandable. Um, so anyway, there what, we go. What was the transport catastrophe? Oh, there was all sorts of plane crashes and mm. all sorts of things and, and some pillar who stole a light aircraft and flew it into a building because he thought he could replicate 2001 and ended up killing himself uh that sort of thing you know well fun and games mm-hmm. as they say yeah so well let's not linger on that <laughs> no let's get to some uh 
to some McBain stuff. I had a look for information on his writing of Fat Ollie's book. I couldn't find a timeline. I looked in his archive finding aid. He's written a chronology. He's written a, a final version. There's a copy of Report to the Commissioner, which we'll get to as a uh-huh. piece in itself. Uh-huh. He's, well, he's mentioned this Ollie writing a book for at least one prior novel, yeah. hasn't he? If not two. So it must have been something... Well, Money, Money, Money was the one where he basically walks into the publishers and goes, oh, I'll write a book. Yeah, that's where and he then gets we get, the idea. Oh, so it's yeah. only the one book. Right, okay. But even so, he's had the idea for yeah. a little while. <laughs> Clearly that, that sample extract that he put at the end of Money, Money, Money was of Ollie's writing was triggered something in McBain to say, this is a good idea. Now. <laughs> this is a good way to take this forward. Not least because it gives him a chance to talk a little bit about book writing and publishing <laughs> a little bit more. Yep. Yeah, there's some other bits in in the Evan Hunter archive. There's one section it says here, Fat Ollie's book by Evan Hunter, page proof, 10 pages, November 20th. No, I think, I think this is a separate entry, but it's on the same line. It said November 20th, 1998. So maybe it's been around for that long. Hmm. Um, who knows? We, we, we're not privy to this, really, without actually getting into the archive. Email from Jane Gelfman, who was his uh, representative. To unknown recipient re Jewish haiku <laughs> from the no- November the twentieth two thousand and two. So I don't know whether he was intending on having. I don't know what that's about. So he's find all sorts of weird little notes like that inside there. There was uh, anyway. There's been three audiobook versions of this. Mm. One by prior to our own. Prior to our own that we we're definitely going to do. That's that's our new <laughs> phase after this. We're going to each read a word each of every McBain book. Um, but different books at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. can hear three For the at busy, once. the busy person on the go. In the end, three slightly contrasting northern accents. Fantastic. <laughs> well, that work. Whether well, you'd understand anything Would you process it a little bit? <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, yeah, let's be mad. But yeah, there's two versions. Uh, one by Simon and Schuster in 2003, read by Ron McClarty. One by Isis, that's an unfortunate name, Isis <laughs> Audiobooks. They were both 2003. And then there was another version by Mike, read by Michael Arkin in 2011. Mm. So yeah, audiobooks exist. So there. <laughs> but yeah, Fat Ollie's book then. Have we all read it before? Yes. I thought I had, but what I was obviously remembering was references to Ollie's book in Money, Money, Money. And But it turned out I hadn't at all. So, right, okay. So, the first, first time... The first thing I'm going to say is, whilst it's called Fat Ollie's Book, is also a fairly fat book as well, isn't it? <gasps> it is quite fat. The paperback, we've all got paperback editions, is, mm. is fairly chunky. It is. So, yes, it's a fat book. Fat Ollie's Fat Book <laughs> is what we've got here. So, Morgan's a first-time reader, to his surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, Morgan, I, can you give me some initial um, impressions? How did you find it as you went along as a first-timer? It's good fun, isn't it? Really, I mean, you, we always—it's always pretty enjoyable when Ollie's involved because he—he's—you get the impression he's become a favourite character for McBain to write by this stage. So you can kind of tell he's—he's he's having a bit more fun sometimes when he's writing Fat Ollie than uh, than some of the other stuff. Uh, and obviously, Ollie's own writing style is um, is enjoyable to read as well. Um, yes. Yeah, there's some, there's some enjoyable bits. I. I particularly enjoyed um, McBain using uh, Ollie writing a book to vent 
his own opinions on the rise of Amazon. Yes, yes, this is interesting where Amazon, uh, and it's so part of everyday life now, <laughs> to have it suddenly pop up in the 87th precinct in 2002 is a very strange strange thing to come across. Yeah, it's, it's obviously quite a novel thing, and he's quite clearly outraged at the idea of members of the public <laughs> uh, being able to post reviews. <laughs> yeah, like everyone's a critic now. Yeah, It'll just Love be it. imagine everyone's... Newgate calendar or uh, <laughs> an entire country of, uh, yeah, which he doesn't like professional uh, re- reviewers. So like amateur would just be total uh, aberration to him, wouldn't it? Oh, it, it would drive him wild, I'm sure, because in the old days, it would just be Newgate calendar writing in the Times that would get to his uh, attention. Now he's finding out about everyone and he can't possibly write everyone into the book and get a... Have a <laughs> You could imagine him just like a, just scrolling down the reviews, couldn't you? Yeah, any slightly negative comments would be uh, featured in future novels in a derogatory yeah, character or such. yeah. So the, yeah, the whole uh, publishing uh, industry is sort of pivoting into a new a new era here with with Amazon as a thing, and yeah, the customer voice becoming more important and you know having an impact on on things. So. He likes getting some old themes in, though. Even though theatre is not really part of this story, mm. he still manages to get loads of a theatre in it, doesn't he? Yeah, he <laughs> um, talks about stuff on stage because yeah. of the venue where mm. you know the events take place and stuff like that. Yeah, Steve, do you want to try and give it as a story overview? What happens in here? Oh, right, yeah. It's well, it's certainly, let's put it this way: it's not as complicated as money, money, money no, by a long thank chalk. Goodness, no, uh, that could be. No, true. no, I don't suppose it is actually. No, in terms of strain of plot, it isn't really. No, uh, the the crime I think is introduced almost immediately mm. with a somebody come to realise is a fairly prominent politician shot within a a theatre auditorium uh, and somebody's seen fleeing from the scene by a, a drunk Vietnam veteran that nobody yep. believes and everyone forgets about for about 220 pages. <laughs> um, and Ollie picks up the call, doesn't he? And so it's essentially his case to begin with. And he's also going on... Uh, well, he, he's... Uh, internal dialogue, he's talking about his book he's finished, doesn't he? Yes. Which he takes, he's taking to get photocopied, I believe. At Kinko's, which I had to look up. He keeps mentioning a place called Kinko's. I knew of Kinko's from um, uh, Ben Snakepit, uh, the, the punk cartoonist, uh, in his his comic strips, uh, the, early, the early ones. There they are reproduced at Kinko's. Very frequent visits to Kinko's appear in the strips, which he then obviously copied at Kinko's. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a photocopying place or, or a sort of uh, stationer's like copier's place, which got folded into FedEx eventually. Mm-hmm. And they got rid of the name because it's a bonkers name for a business. <laughs> Kinko's. Yeah, I can't say I've heard that. But anyway, yes. And then somebody nicks his uh, case containing his original and only draft of yes. this story from the back of his car. written on a typewriter rather than on a computer. So he skillfully kind of pretends to his superiors that this crime is somehow related to the other crime, enable that he's kind of able to spend a lot of time <laughs> investigating the loss of his story, whilst at the same time investigating the... Um, the shooting of the politician. The majority of the book is taken up with those dual pursuits. Now, the 87th are dragged in in that the 
this politician lived in the um, smoke rise, the posh bit yeah. of the eighty seventh ah, precinct, um, and so they decide to share the the credit, and therefore Corella and Kling, isn't it mainly, yeah. are assisting, and then kind of take over because Ollie seems to get totally sidetracked with hunting down his story for well, after his initial efforts. But whilst all this is going on, then there's Eileen Burke has moved to the 87th Precinct as a full-time yes. member of the detective squad. First time we've seen her for, I think, a few years now. Yes. Yeah, so. she's, she's back. And she's immediately partnered with Parker on some sort of drugs bust that you don't really get too much information about initially, but slowly and surely yeah. it finds its way into the main plot of the the main story by another character who is the person who has stolen the book from yeah. Ollie, who is reading this book and believes it to be a work of non-fiction, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. topical of the day, and therefore that person starts investigating what's happening in the story within the story and somehow by an amazing coincidence gets involved in the real story. Yes. Yes. Um, and everything very cleverly all gets mingled together at the end. Uh, yeah. to, well, towards the end, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the, the plot mechanism is very clever, actually. Yeah. So the, the, actu the actual investigations themselves aren't necessarily super complicated, really. But it's it's more the the, way the crafting of the story. Yeah, the is way neatly done. The way um, the the different elements kind of dovetail together in a hilarious and improbable manner. Yeah. It's, it's quite fun, isn't it? Yeah, and with, with Ollie's book being written in the form of a, a police report, sort of. Yes, yeah, so um, it's, it's given the really naff title of "Report to the Commissioner," um, and that's what it purports to be by a detective who is very similar to one of the detectives in the story who's investigating, a, who's trapped in a basement somewhere. Yeah, yeah. he's taking enough elements from, from, from real life that it's, it's easy for the person who finds the book to just assume that it's, it, it, everything's just a code for something in real life, because it kind of is, because he, he hasn't yeah. really bothered to change that many things that much. But the, yeah, the... Uh, the book that's written by a fat Ollie is uh, is incredibly funny, though. To read. <laughs> I absolutely loved those bits as well. It's hysterical. And, um, yeah, aside from the story, yeah, it's very, very. It must be one of the funniest, like proper many, many total laugh out moments all the way through. I thought. Just I think it. it I think uh, it's the the peak of his comedy mm. books. Really, I mean, it's you have to balance that against a lot of the comedy comes from fat Ollie, and you have to. Remember, you're not laughing with him. You are mm. laughing at him because he still is an absolute bigot. And But we're moving him down a path to something different in this book. Yeah, yeah the, see the seeds of his redemption to some extent, maybe. Yeah, yeah the, the bigotry is definitely turned down, certainly more as the book goes on. And he's kind of like slight daftness is kind of revealed for what it is, really, I suppose. Yeah, there's a couple of very telling moments about his character in this, I think. And that's that's very cleverly done. Yeah, it is. It's it's a fascinating way to use this character who is horrible and make him. I'm not going to say appealing, 
but you know he's appealing within the story. Yeah, he's not an appealing person. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, a, he's appealing to read about, isn't he? Cause yes, he, cause very he, much so. Because he's he's interesting and uh, just seems to attract ridiculous things happening more often than not of his own making in <laughs> yeah. some shape or form. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but as we've always said, he remains a good cop mm. in terms of his his tenacity to actually get something done to get a result. Well, and he doesn't do it in the manner of Parker. He's not the sort of person who would smash someone's face in. No. No, I mean, he'd be massively insulting to them and quite threatening, but he's, you know... He's... Well, the, the biggest difference, like, Parker's incredibly lazy, isn't he? Where yes. Ollie is anything but lazy. Mm. Um, but there's that passage where they, they go to... Um, the scene of the he takes Corella to the scene of the crime, doesn't he? And Corella just feels sorrow and sadness. Yes. And then he says, "But Fat Ollie just sees a puzzle to be solved." Yeah, that's, and, and that is very, the fundamental yeah. difference yeah. of their two characters. Because Fat Ollie couldn't give care less about this dead politician at all, but he's absolutely, definitely determined to find the person who did it, nonetheless, yeah. equally as determined as, as Steve Corella. Mm-hmm. So they've just got their totally different. Coming from it, totally different. And of course, uh, Corella is is bound to Ollie by the fact that he saved his life <laughs> twice in the previous book, which he enjoys reminding him about uh, yeah. at every available opportunity. Mm. Yeah. So essentially, we have a murder at the Martin Luther King Memorial Hall, which is in the eighty eighth precinct. Hence, Ollie ending up being first man up. We also have a reappearance a couple of times of Honey Blair, the news reporter oh, yeah. who was in the book before as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ollie's finished writing his book. Part f- so the, the interesting thing is he takes his book out to be copied at Kinko's, except for the last chapter, which he's still checking over at home. Yeah. Why he wouldn't have just waited and taken the whole thing, I don't know. Just got excited, I think. <laughs> we do have a brief appearance from Monaghan and Monroe, who Ollie doesn't like. <laughs> but he doesn't like anyone. So And we have this dead councilman, Lester Henderson, who's shot from the side of the stage. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there's lots of people around. They're setting up for some sort of political event type thing, and it's it's a yeah. It's case like early of, in the morning, isn't it, when everybody's busy uh, yeah, doing yeah. like uh, testing uh, lights and sound yeah, and, and sound bunting up, and, yeah. yeah, testing lights and whatnot. So there's a a scene of relative chaos whilst this happens, and that's why, despite the many many people there, nobody really sees anything. Yeah, everyone has a slightly can, different idea of where the shot came from, and yeah. yeah, no one's quite clear on it. But he does, you know, he starts that investigation and he thinks he's been kicked off the case by some, you know, one of the brass who turns up and says, you're not on this. Um, but he goes and pleads with his his lieutenant to um, let him on it. Uh, but he also discovers his car's been broken into and his case has been stolen, as we've said. And we get to meet his sister as well, which is interesting. <laughs> so Isabella Weeks, who is who eats as much as Ollie, but remains razor thin. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't like her either, does he? No. Yeah, she's she's um, yeah, she she doesn't really suffer his his uh, nonsense particularly kindly, does she? So no, she doesn't. She's and when he's going on about his book, she she's like, "Oh, you've written a book," and she's like, "Why don't you just print out another copy?" He's like, "What do you mean, print? How do you write it? It's not a typewriter with any carbon paper. No, it's just." And she makes sort of little sly digs referring to him as Nora Roberts and Mary Higgins Clark, <laughs> both of whom were, you know, Nora Roberts was a romance and crime writer, apparently wrote hundreds of books, was even more prolific than McBain. 
Um, and Mary Higgins Clark, who wrote suspense novels, was born in 1927 in New York. So they were contemporaries, right. essentially, anyway. There's a very talk about him writing on the typewriter because he goes on about the style of writing, writing it like a, a police report, although not in triplicate, although in hindsight he wished he had written <laughs> yeah, yeah, it in triplicate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. I, found, I did look for a couple of links to these references, Nora Roberts and Mary Higgins Clark. And uh, the one thing I do know is that Mary Higgins Clark and Ed McBain at some point were using the same researcher. So uh, there's a chap called Daniel Starer or Starer, it's S-T-A-R-E-R, Starer, I don't know, who used to be a researcher for, for novelists. Right. And so he used to do research for Ed McBain and he used to do research for Mary Higgins Clark. So there's a link there. How on earth you become a researcher to novelists? That yeah, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a writer who, you know, sort of broadened their portfolio to doing research for other writers. It's mm. uh, So I don't know if, if he's still going. The website, I must say, is a little old. That is, But there is a website called researchforwriters.com yeah. that has disinformation on it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the 87th Precinct gets dragged in, as we've said, because they're up in Smoke Rise and we have a nice reference back to King's Ransom, uh-huh. a story from 1959. Yes, yeah, nuts, isn't it, when you're referring to books, yeah, and entries that much older. Like half a century ago. Yeah. yeah, so the casual reader wouldn't have a clue about what that is at all, but we get to go to, we get to go to a lot of... Um, Restaurants, cafes, diners with Ollie and, and witness, you know, Lots. via the eyes of Corella and Kling watching him eat. Lots of eating, yeah. Yeah, I, I could almost sense the dripping cheese. It made me feel quite queasy, I must admit. Yeah, it's, he's like a cartoon. He's sort of described like a cartoon character. Much, you know, he's, yeah. he's like got several hands constantly yeah, just, shoveling food into his face or picking up another bit of food. Blur of activity, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's a there's an interesting thing in chapter three. Uh, in, you know, I like to find real world references in these in these stories. In chapter three, when Ollie's taking Corella to have a look at the hall, and we have that bit about sadness against you know puzzle solving. Yeah, he does mention about the fact that there's cops stood around because they're really aware that there'd been a series of um, assaults in Grover Park the year before. And I thought, well, that's surely got to be akin to something in the real world. Right. And uh, so from. This article that I've got here is from, I think it's from a couple of years before, so from summer of 2000, an article called The Outrage in Central Park. New Yorkers were rightfully outraged when they learned that a roving mob of young men assaulted several women in Central Park early Sunday evening, just after the annual Puerto Rican National Day Parade. A televised videotape that showed the mob reveling in these savage attacks was horrifying enough. But the rampage took on an even more disturbing cast when victims charged that police officers whom they had approached to report the attacks did nothing at a time when swift intervention might have prevented further assaults. Gosh. And so in the world of Fat Ollie's book, this is why they've got loads of police at the scene of this thing standing around keeping an eye on things because they're trying to prevent people saying that they're not putting enough effort into into what they're doing. Uh, So this was, yeah... They had video of these these this gang of men, but it's the mob seemed to have included twenty and twenty to fifty young men who attacked about twenty women, fondling and attempting to undress many of them, Christ. throwing water over them, robbing some of them. But because there was video of this, there's later articles. They did manage to get a few of these people, but yeah, absolutely outraged because of the fact that these women were going up to police officers and they were going now, whatever, just like oh blimey. So that was. Uh, under the watch of Mayor 
Rudy Giuliani <laughs> and Police Commissioner Howard Safir, uh, who have noted that the police cannot be everywhere and have urged New Yorkers to keep this crime in perspective. I'm uh, sure that did loads to uh, yeah, quell sure. people's... Oh, that, that's fine then. Yeah. This was before Rudy went completely mad as well. Well, mm. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that yeah, real world, very real world equivalent there. Yeah. So we have a lot with Corella then going to speak to the widow up in Smoke Rise, Mrs. Henderson, and we discover that the the, the politician, the councilman, had been on a trip up to the state capital. So whatever is the uh, McBain world equivalent of Albany, presumably mm. he'd been up to the state capital for a meeting and, and hadn't gone back home. He'd gone straight to his place in the city before being killed. Yeah. I'm just sort of going through chronologically here with bits and pieces. Mm. We have Eileen Burke turning up again, as we say. So she's had her time doing the sort of hostage negotiation stuff. We've got her relationship former relationship with Burt Kling hovering in the air over this because they're suddenly going to be in the working in the same team together. Yeah, there's also then a a reference to give the boys a great big hand from 1960, which they called the rain case. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, it's... There's all sorts of possibilities who who might have bumped off this politician, including Reverend Gabriel Foster, who we've met before, Mm -hmm. because he had an actual fist fight with the man. In some sort of town hall debate about okay. something. Page 62. Gentlemen, if you turn to your your uh, songbooks, page 62. This is the page about Amazon.com. <laughs> oh, yeah. Three, so, three words as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how he renders that, actually, because now we'd be... It's so odd to see a web address not just written as a web address. Yeah. For it to be written down as Amazon.com is a very interesting thing. Because this is in the midst of, of Ollie remembering how he started writing his, his book, which at one point was called Bad Money. He used to think that Amazon.com was a very large, broad named Dorothy Calm. Dot Calm. Dot To him, the reviews on this book selling site seemed like the book reports he had to write when he was in the sixth grade. In fact, the reviews on Amazon seemed to be written by soccer moms who'd never been to school at all, it looked like. He wondered why Amazon, presumably in the business of selling books, would post bad reviews about books they were trying to sell, but hey, that was their business. Well, I think they fixed that, haven't they, in subsequent years by just having lots of false good reviews about everything. Yeah, the whole so system now is bonkers. Yeah, he, was, uh, he didn't know what he was wishing for, did he? No, yeah. I mean, the one thing you should never do when you try to buy anything anywhere is read the reviews. No, it just, no. It instantly puts you into a complete turmoil because there'll be like three reviews that are all like, this thing is brilliant, five stars. This is amazing, five stars. This solved every, the specific problem you're looking for it for, five stars. Then it'll be one star package slightly damaged. And you'll be going, oh no, someone got, what's that one star? Does it mean it's not very good? You just can't win. And another classic McBain thing, which is talking about sort of, Treating anywhere outside of the city as like a backwater with a funny oh, yeah. name, like Green Beans, Georgia, or Saddle Sores, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, but that's uh, what I like about this, Morgan, is that bit where he goes on then to talk about the language that you to write the book in. How, because so all these books are written in a particular sort of language, yeah. you know, it's supposed to be first person perspective of a female character, it turns out. <laughs> But uh, that example of the sound of music came from somewhere inside the apartment. It's noisome beat filled the hallway tremblingly, which he changes to loud music hammered the halls. <laughs> which, to be honest, is probably as good a writing tip as any. Yep. 
you know. Well, he has the pretend writing tip, the writer's guide that he gets from this publisher, doesn't he, later on? Oh, yeah. That it kind of... Yeah, the, the, all the, the things the, that your story must do. Yeah, the thing, you've great. got to have the ticking clock and the jeopardy and the uh, a female character, and he's just basically ensured he's ticked all these boxes. Yeah, sometimes in, in a kind of... Yeah, just sort of specifically writes in there that the clock was ticking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, I think that's come from, you know, so McBain's early career before he was a famous writer, he was an editor for the Scott Meredith Agency, mm. an agent there. And I'm pretty sure that this this letter that Ollie's received from the fake publishers Wadsworth and Dodds from the book before that's got these seven points that you must put in every book. I reckon that's probably cribbed directly from the sheets they used to send, send out, out yeah. to authors in the 1950s. That sounds entirely plausible. I've definitely read a, a few biographies of um, sci-fi writers from the era that, that tell you about having yeah. that kind of formula that, that they've Well, many of them would have come to, through yeah. Scott Meredith as well Absolutely, and had yeah. their stuff published through them uh, to magazines and stuff <laughs> like that. So, yeah, I've no doubt he was very well-versed in in that which would either have been in the Scott Meredith book, which they tried to encourage, you know, wannabe authors to buy or just their general fact sheet they would send out, you know, to try and get them to then buy the book, you know, send, you know, $5 or whatever it would have been at the time. The most astonishing thing about the book, though, is it's written from the perspective of a female detective. And you couldn't really think of a character more inappropriate to do that than Fat Ollie, really, could you? Well, I think this is part of his redemption, it though, is, isn't it? It, it is, yes. It's yes. the fact that he tries to disguise himself. You know, he'd made up a male um, pseudonym for his first attempt, Bad Money, but then when it comes to report to the commissioner, he's trying to write from the female point of view. Mm. And actually, you know, <laughs> it's of all the things in the book, he sort of does it all right. Yeah, he gives it a good shot, doesn't he? Really, it's, it's, yeah. uh... I mean, there's, there's. Although he, his female character is always noting and commenting on the female form of any <laughs> other <laughs> female character, um, but not the male characters, which is quite funny. Yeah, I mean, I think perhaps McBain's also addressing some of the criticisms towards him as well by doing this in in Ollie's voice. Uh, yeah, maybe as well. Uh, yes, yeah, like I think it's very knowing. Yeah. yeah. Which, but it's, yeah, it's quite funny because some of the ways he talks, you know, he gets Ollie to write about the characters in his own little book are really interesting the way the other characters come into it. <laughs> I will say, except for and <laughs> the fact that he features a, a stool pigeon called the Needle because he's <laughs> he's very thin. Well, it's not because it's well, it's not because he's thin or because he's got one eye. <laughs> yeah. um, who's his equivalent of of Fat's Donna? So he's, he's cleverly disguised Fats Donner by making this his snitch very thin and also talking it, it, it in rap. speaks only in... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, you know my feelings on McBain doing stuff with music, but he makes... Yeah, Ollie's got this character who speaks only in rap couplets. Yeah. And not very good ones. So, yeah, yeah when, he's, when, it, when it's a parody of bad writing, it's fine. If it was McBain yeah. trying to do it himself just... Seriously, it would be terrible, but maybe someone's kind of someone's pointed out to him that his attempts to write rap lyrics are appalling, and that's why he's included that. Oh, just for everyone's uh, attention, the next book we'll be looking at is the Frumious Bandersnatch. Oh, happy days! Um, you know, a bit of foreshadowing there. Um, well, the, the yeah, the talking about the book within the book, like it's got such an improbable start to the plot. Somebody goes into the the squad room to report their wife's missing. <laughs> but re re 
refuses to give them their real name or address or, or wife's wife real name. name or their fictitious <laughs> cousin's name. Mentions something to do with RUF, which is uh, like a, an organisation in Angola to do with like counterfeit blood diamonds. And then this investigation just starts. <laughs> it's just absolutely nuts. It's amazing. Yeah, it's... He's just draw. Ollie's clearly just drawing everything together. What I like about Ollie is this sense that he experiences things and it suddenly just fires him up completely. Like he meets a piano teacher, he's like, "I'll oh, teach me piano." Yeah. He, he has to go and investigate something at a publisher's. He's like, "I'll write a book." You know, it, it's yeah. that mad enthusiasm for someone who you'd think would be not enthusiastic about anything. But he's not. He's in his own way, he's a sort of bizarre polymath, mm. yeah. <laughs> even if he's not particularly great at these things. Except maybe he is great. Maybe he's great at dancing. He won a limbo wow. competition, we learn. Yeah, this is true. You also find out his book's like 35 pages <laughs> long or something, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and his sister says, well, it's not very long. And he was like, well, it's on that quality, not quantity. Yeah, well, and, and the irony as well is he has to talk at some point to someone from the Vice Squad. And the, and Ollie's like finally admits, all right, look, what I'm trying to do is mm. find this copy of my book I wrote. And the guy's like, you wrote a book? I wrote a book as well. <laughs> Mine's with my agent. And Ollie, instead of being like, oh, really? Can you give me any tips? Can you introduce me to your agent? Ollie's like, well, competition. He just, hate, he just hates this fellow from that moment on, doesn't he? He despises him, yeah. And he makes a quip about John Grisham. And it's just like, there's, who? Mm. <laughs> it's like Toast of London every time a famous name actor's yeah. mentioned and Toast's who? like, who? <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so anyway, where are we with this one? So... One thing that happens is that Ollie meets a uniformed officer called Patricia Gomez. Uh, just by chance, she brings him, she's been tasked to bring him some evidence. But he talks to her a few more times because, not necessarily just because he fancies her immediately, he does comment on her figure, but it, partly because he just liked the way she talked back to him when he was a bit, you know, he calls her honey and she was like, Officer Gomez, please. And he got, he's like, well, I'll talk to her because she's sort of straight talking. Hmm. And that's the start of a very interesting relationship. But yes, he gets someone to explain to him what stage right and stage left is and then enjoys explaining that to other people. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is Ollie all over, isn't he? He learns something new and he wants to say it to everyone else. <laughs> Except that there's a diagram in this book that Ollie draws about what stage left and stage right is that doesn't make any sense because <laughs> it doesn't have where the audience is. Yeah. So it's, it's entirely <laughs> irrelevant what stage left and stage right is. <laughs> Anyway, there's a little bit of theatre, like you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, That's yeah, a bit of that help, in there. We'll get that in. Stage left and stage right in the spotlight and yeah, yeah, all that. Anyway, yeah. So Andy Parker's off with Burke. They go and see the cowboy who is the uh, snitch du jour in this book. Oh, yeah. He gets quite a bit uh, yeah. of action in this. Yeah, Fats is in here as well. And, and Danny Gimp gets mentioned mm. by virtue of his having been shot and killed. The love letters, not mentioned those. No, this well, this is what happens. At some point, mm. Henderson's wife turns up and says, I found some love letters in his desk. And this throws new light on why someone might have killed him. We'll come to the denouement at some point and my f weird feelings about that mm. sequence. But Ollie's chasing up this this gun that's been used in the shooting that they found and his dispatch case in the pawn mm. shops and discovers that the dispatch case was sold by someone called Emmy. But we also know that we have someone called Emilio reading the book. And these are a junkie and supposedly one's a prostitute and one's a junkie. We later find out they're the same person. Mm -hmm. You know our spoiler policy. Um, 
and um, it was basically a transvestite prostitute in, in yes. this instance. They're great characters as well. I mean, that's one thing this book does really well. They're very good characters, even though these are junky, uh, yeah. sort of on the streets, living a terrible life. Very well drawn mm. in, in this book, yeah. I think. And, and yeah, really quite sort of compelling and, and entertaining. The, 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 the sort of wild goose chase following around the clues from the from all these manuscripts is uh, it's, it's it's excellent isn't it yeah it is great it fun is. so there's there's lots of follow-up going on burke burke and parker are trying to work out what's going on with this possible drugs bust which we learn out is three learn is three chances who've just decided that they're going to instead of actually buying some drugs from this woman who's who's selling them they're going to just shoot everyone and take the drugs um, they're proper, like a Three Stooges scenario, <laughs> which is another thing just going on. But it, like, like you say, weirdy, everything starts to dovetail around the description of Detective Olivia Wesley Watts in Ollie's book and what Eileen Burke looks like in real life as well. <laughs> yeah, so the one clue that uh, um, they get of the where this potential basement that the fictitious detective is, it's in a basement of an Irish bar two blocks from yeah, the precinct is, station and, and that's where the that is the point at which the book and the um, the book within the book overlap isn't it I don't think it's in the basement of the bar but the bar is where the the um, a lot of the yeah there's some some reference to a bar where people yeah. are meeting and talking because they know the basement's so well, I think they, it, and then they, then they go to the they go to the bar and overhear about yes. the yeah, yeah. She, she, she yeah Amelia's uh, friend overhears yeah, about right. the drugs yeah. bust and therefore and then they see Eileen Burke coming out and that's where uh, all the the <laughs> weird coincidence occurs yeah so anyway uh, Carella goes off to the state capital to follow up on where this this Lester Henderson went for his brief meeting before he got shot back in the city. Takes Teddy with him for some reason. It's nice for to have a trip out. Well, yeah, well, it is nice to have a trip out. So, but, you know, they go up on the train and they have a little chat about his sister and his mother getting married soon. Uh, yeah, clearly they go and have a meal at this nice restaurant, probably put it on police expenses, <laughs> which is fine. But it does lead it does lead Corella to who wrote the letters via a sort of series of hotel registries and, and restaurant bookings and things like that. Hmm. And so we've got another person who possibly is involved here. Her boyfriend, who's given her a black eye. <laughs> extract of the book on page 178, I like, which is, um, well, it's, it's after an extract from the book, but the comment afterwards is, the trouble with <laughs> Livy's city, this is Olivia, uh, was that it was imaginary. The people, the places in her pages were all fictitious. For all Amelia knew, even the police routine was phony and not based on established investiga <laughs> investigatory technique. Yeah, I, I laughed out loud at that when, when I read it the first time. Yeah, there's, there's nothing, never been so self-referential <laughs> as actually having the uh, the classic 87th Precinct statement sort of woven into the actual story itself, <laughs> which is great. I like that as well. Yeah, so anyway, let's how, how do we wrap this all up then, basically? We, you know, this is one where all the crimes get solved, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. They do, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think everything. Even the silly, weird, almost non-crime in the in the report to the commissioner as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've got to mention this before we we start to wrap it up as well. Is there's a section where that we find out that Ollie thinks he's sort of descended from British aristocracy. That's mm -hmm. his belief, not that he's not Irish or Welsh or anything like that. He sort of wants to be 
like English. Yeah. And he talks about a place called Walberswick in uh, Suffolk, okay. which to an American would be an absolute, where's that? To someone who lives in England, you ever heard of Walberswick? No. No, it no. does exist. Oh, it does exist. Okay. So Walberswick in, in Suffolk, it's just south of Lowestoft. Nice. And this person they refer to, Robert Weeks, was a merchant there, you know, way, way in the in the past. And the merchant's mark in the book that's actually reproduced, a little drawing in the book, is a real thing. Brilliant. Yeah. So this may be a thing that Daniel Starer researched for well, him, maybe. We don't know. He's earned his pay then. But Walberswick, it's like it had a population of 380 in, in 2011. This is a <laughs> tiny place. And the fact that it's turned up in, in a 87th Precinct story in reference... No, it's not. Yeah. Even more uh, nuts is Walberswick is loads of celebrities have lived there. So like people like Charles Rennie Mackintosh, the Scottish yeah. like architect designer, lived in Walberswick in <laughs> Suffolk. Suffolk. <coughs> Suffolk. Clement Freud and the, lots of people from the Freud family, like Emma Freud oh, and Richard yeah, Curtis. Martin Bell. All right. Former newsreader, politician, and UNICEF ambassador. Yeah. The actor Jeffrey Palmer. Crikey. Okay. And the actor David Morrissey, mm. who's a Liverpool lad. Mm. So Gosh. Um, must be uh, must be a nice place for all these celebs to live there. Yeah, well, if we, they um, make uh, up quite a part of the 380 people. I, who I, live I imagine there. it to be a, a bit like Stella Street. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, Stella Street, Mick very Jagger much so. In the corner shop there. <laughs> quite possibly. And the village was famous for its annual crabbing competition. Mm, of course it was. The British Open Crabbing Championship, it was called, <laughs> in which the person who caught the single heaviest crab within a period of 90 minutes was declared the winner. 90 minutes? Crikey. Just think how many crabs you can get in 90 minutes off a good pier or harbour. I don't know if crabbing's a thing anywhere other than off British coastlines. Surely it must be. It must be, surely, yeah. yeah. It's fun catching crabs. Uh, no, yeah. that sounds weird. <laughs> Oh, it's it's, it's uh, crab. Certainly, crab fishing is a big thing in Baltimore, isn't it? That's that's the they eat a lot of uh, a lot of shellfish there. Don't the, they? the only only thing I know about uh, crabbing in America. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's sadly not our specialist subject. <laughs> no. So yeah, starting to wrap it all up, we get and finally someone remembers the eyewitness that wasn't questioned by the the office the uniformed officers at the scene of the crime. Patricia Gomez, Officer Patricia Gomez, finds an architect plan of the hall, which helps with the how the gun can be found on one side mm-hmm. of the building when it was shot from the other side. And we end up with, yeah, a good description of an outfit. It all starts to fit together. And we pull in Mrs. Henderson. So that's our main baddie in this one, mm. because she was stupid enough to wear a hat that had the letters SRA on them. Smoke Rise Academy. And we have Nellie Brandon to do a usual bit of don't play games with me to the <laughs> yeah. other lawyer, which I always like in these books. Yeah, it's always fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but she's the least shocking baddie of this book, though, isn't she? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious, really. Once, But why? So this is my question as in terms of that outcome. If you'd killed your husband, right, and they didn't really know what happened, anything to go on why would you then take a load of love letters in that you've just found yourself because surely that then opens a whole avenue of of investigation yeah. in which one of the people you would say is oh perhaps she actually knew her husband was having an affair 
it's well, they why don't you just chuck him on the fire and say, well, well he's dead now? They try and address that in the book by saying, oh, well, to throw us off the scent and all that. But mm. yeah, you, you're right. No, she could have just kept quiet about it. And would yeah. they have been any other wiser? Perhaps she was subconsciously wanting to get uh, found out. Who knows? Yeah, mm. that's it. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. It's 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 a bit of a, a bit of a weak link, perhaps in the in yeah. the plot there. But to be honest, there is a section in this book where someone says they don't believe in God; they believe in coincidence, and that is so much of the principle of of these stories, mm. isn't it? As we've discussed many times, yeah. And clearly, a, a an idea of McBain's as a as an atheist who writes books where coincidence is very very important. Mm. Yeah. And we also have this this drugs bust that the gaucho was told Burke and Parker about, and they have an armed police who basically these three men who reckon they're just going to clean up by going in with the element of surprise all go in one after another with their guns, so immediately get shot in a row by the armed police. That all gets. I thought they got shot by the. Uh, they get shot by the hoodies, the, the hoodlums, don't they? Is it and, the hood- and then the police go in. I think. I, all it is is it, well, I know that it's it's an absolute mess of tons of people suddenly turning up, full of people and yeah, uh, shooting and stuff and. And Eileen Burke essentially gets the the bust after, yeah, after going a little bit further than Andy Parker, who at one point is like, "Well, I'm not going to go and check out the place where where the bust's <laughs> going to happen. I'm just going home because it's time to go off the <laughs> clock." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Ollie and Patricia decide to go dancing together. Oh, which is you know, <laughs> we'll find out more about in the future. Really. So we better we better start to pull this together and uh, come up with our. our You've final... not mentioned the most amazing oh, bit of the oh, entire oh. book. Have Sorry, Steve. The, the culmination of the the book within the book. That's, oh that's yeah, the, that's the. I suppose the thing is so, in their little fevered minds, little junky minds, uh, Emilio slash Emmy and his friend um, Anya um, t- turn up at this drug scene, thinking they've figured it out, and they think that. Eileen Burke is Olivia, Livy. And it's the rushing over to her as she comes out of the scene to say, it's all right, your secret's safe, I've burned the book. Which she doesn't know what on earth yeah. is they're on about. But then the but then you get to read the actual end of the book at the end of the book. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's great. So you get the story within the story. Actually, you at least us as readers get to see the whole story, all 35 pages of it or whatever it is. The well, are we, are we going to give the give that away? Maybe not. Maybe that will be something we won't spoil. Truly shocking, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, he's <laughs> he's got the seeds of an idea, Ollie. There, he just he just he's just written it at thirty five pages and thought that'll do. <laughs> he's got his three notes of night and day sorted. He's written thirty five pages of a book. He can do with anything a, with a massive plot twist on page oh, thirty four. Yeah. Yeah. that's it. Magnificent. Uh, Oh, I like it. Right. Well, I'm going to go to Morgan for his summing up and, and rating first then, because I think it's it's time. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it as a first time reader. It's it, there's just there's a lot of a lot of fun stuff in there. As you say, it's 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 the funniest of the series, really. Um, there's a couple of implausibilities, as, as we've we've noted, but I think just the tone of this is such that you don't necessarily mind that too much. There are mm. others where where you've got a bit more of a somber tone. If you have like a big glaring coincidence or something, it can it can seem a bit jarring. I think this one's kind of it's it's quite a 
comic caper anyway. Yeah, so, I was just uh, going to say that we hmm. haven't said the word caper because there is literally a caper in it. The three men with the drug bust are setting up their own caper. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the whole thing, like you say, yeah, it's got a caper feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I, I was I was very into it. I was very happy to read it for the first time. I'm going to give it a, a hearty um, 84 police shields. 84. Brilliant. Okie dokie. Steve-O. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right there. Like the, pl- yeah, in big implausibilities annoy you more when like the, you want much more of a serious tone, and yeah. you know the the book's trying to like, you know, well, not just an McBain, but any any plots trying to be very clever, and then when you think, well, actually, that all revolves around like right. a really daft implausibility. This you couldn't care less about that. Really, <laughs> no. <laughs> So um, yes, I would concur with uh, those comments. But yeah, I, I think this is an absolute top draw one, like one of the absolute best, like the later certainly. So I, I think I would probably go ninety-one. I think. Wow, I think it's a, a very good entry. Well, my summing up, you know, yes, broad strokes. I agree with you both there. I mean, I think you know, looking back a little bit, there's a certain amount of having your cake and eating it too with having a character like Ollie who does so many bigoted things and being able to sort of say, oh, well, he's a character who's bigoted. So I get to make the Jewish jokes. I get to make the jokes about the Irish. I get to, you know, all that yeah. stuff. So, but then by the same token, it is a character and he is there to illustrate a point and he is there to illustrate a type as much as anything else. And yet somehow the, the skill of the author is that you you do root for him. And when he asks patricia gomez to go dancing you're like yes you know this is this is a this is a big leap forward for this sort of character mm. who otherwise has just been a big fat slob yes good cop you know notwithstanding so i oh am i gonna rate it i like it it is very funny oh, <laughs> i'm probably just I, I don't think i'll go as high as you two but i will go for 80 police shields mm-hmm. which will give it a grand Kenneth total of 85 police shields, no rounding required. Mm, so that's not bad, is it? That? 10, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, not bad at all. Okie dokie. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the next book we will be looking at is The Frumious Bandersnatch. And I'm not just being mad saying that. That is actually its title. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so we will be back for that. But we will be back for our um, bonus episode, our little Christmas party bonus episode that will be coming up for this. So until then, steve going to say goodbye. I'm going to say au revoir. And Morgan's going to say fairly well. Fairly well.